The Crux of the Matter, Episode 31, The 2nd Century as Informing the 21st Century. Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors and for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And this is Professor Scott Stigmeyer. How are you doing today, Scott? Today, I'm doing great. Good. Good. You're getting ready for uh, school to start, I presume. When do things start up for you? Man, yeah. I start teaching classes start on Monday. Wow. So, yeah. It's ready or not. Adult-like. Yes, I know. (laughs) Ready or not, I am going to be in the classroom on Monday. That's awesome. yeah, I'm I, I'm I'm pretty ready, but you never know, right? I mean, the right. first time you do something, it's you're always a little anxious. Am I well prepared enough? Did I, you know, will I be able to do this, you know, at all? Right. Am I going to be a fraud? The usual. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. But yeah, uh, there, but there's always I one part I'm, of you that thinks that every time you step in front of a group of people, I think at least for me. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. I always there's always. I mean, once in a while, I'll feel so in command of my material. I have such mastery of my material. But that's usually stuff that I've done repeatedly before right. people. And right. You're very with, comfortable with it. Yeah. But but with with teaching a course for the first time, um, you know, even though it's material that I know, uh, you know, I'm I'm actually more concerned about things like what, how do I, what if the students are disruptive? What if uh, they're falling asleep during my lecture? Right. What can you um, throw at them? That's sort of right. What can I throw at them without being sued? Yeah. Um, and, you know, things like, uh, you know, what if I get, how will students respond if I give them Fs? And so, you know, yeah. I mean, those are the kinds of things that are on my mind more than, because the material that I'm teaching is stuff that I, am, uh, I would say relatively confident with this semester. Um, because they they went easy on me, and I've got a couple sections of intro to theology, which is yeah. uh, basic Christian dogma, and then I am teaching a bioethics course. But I taught that this summer, and that went gotcha. well. So. so that's already a second second yeah. round at that. So yeah, that'll be good. yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. So Very what are you cool. up to? Well, I'm uh, I'm kind of in the throes of of getting ready for all of the fall things. You know, figuring out confirmation and adult and adult instruction and Bible classes and we have a big calendar meeting coming up in a week. And so this is kind of the big planning planning stage, the the deep breath before diving in for the fall. So so that's and that's good. It's uh it's it's always uh it's always kind of a, a tug and pull on how ready are you gonna be for the fall because there's always a sense where once you get started it's hard to it's hard to step back and say, oh, wait a minute, I got to do a little more planning here. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, too late. Yeah. We're going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's yeah, okay. I'm always that way too. I'm always thinking, well, there's one more article I should read. There's one more <clears throat> step I should have taken. Right, right. Now, I am uh, starting a new class tomorrow on our Sunday morning class. We just finished about a 12-week study of angels and demons, which was a lot of fun. And, uh, and I'm starting a uh, study of the book of Hebrews tomorrow. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah, so that'll be great. And that's a book that I have taught it before, but I haven't been able to find my notes from the last time I taught it, which is kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but uh, I had a had an SDM class with uh, Dr. Arthur Just on uh, on Hebrews about, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago. And, and that has been pretty formative for me. So I've got lots of different 
lots of different things to uh, pull from for that. So that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I never taught on Hebrews, and I always wanted to. So what I I I did on a couple of occasions use Hebrews as like my Lenten series or sure. my you know. Sure. Um, but uh, never taught it. Yeah, it's 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 such a great book. Lots of interesting yeah. things on that. So oh yeah. So that's uh that's kind of what's on my mind today is finishing up the sermon and uh, kind of a few a few other pre Sunday things. But that's good. So what I thought we would talk about today is, uh, is something that kind of came out of this uh, continuing education class I took last week. Last week I took a class uh, with Dr. James Busher and the class was on uh, – what was the exact title? Something like uh, the second century as a model for the 21st century church. And, and basically it was – it was almost a recap of an early church class in some ways, um, but it's uh, uh, but it was really interesting. And the one the one piece to it that I thought you and I could talk about that was very interesting was controversies in the church that make us inward focused versus controversies that make us outward focused. Um, and so that'll ha- that that can have to do with both doctrinal purity and um, and mission and outreach and sort of what's the relationship between these two? How do we understand them? So that's uh, that's kind of our topic for for today, at least in my mind. Um, but let me let me kind of set us up for a sec, if that's all right. Is that all right? Yeah, all sure, right, good. Um, as Dr. Busher explained it, and this is obviously very rough outline. Uh, by and large, the the period of the martyrs for the church, which really was starting with Stephen, let's say, mid-first century or early to mid-first century, uh, up until up until Nicaea or a little bit before, so that f- those first three hundred years, roughly two hundred and fifty years, that most of the controversy surrounding martyrdom in the church was outward focused because the the issue was how do we how do we relate to the roman world to the jewish world to our our neighbors if you will and where do um and how does my confession of the faith uh shape my identity and how do others see it from that from that perspective so martyrdom was very very identity identity focused was very was very structured around that um, now in comparison you had uh, what really came up uh, surrounding the council of Nicaea the rise of Arianism um, and and Arianism kind of a reaction against modalism and where you have these controversies, that are basically groups of people that are all claiming the name of Christian. And, and the question is, who are, who are the Christians? Who are actually those that confess the true God as delivered to us in the scriptures? And so that, that controversy and most of the controversies for the next thousand years in the Christian church really were centered around Around that, who are the who are the Christians? Who are the who, who is the real church, and who are the false teachers? Now, 
that's not going to be 100 percent on either side. Certainly there were plenty of internal controversies that happened during the period of, of martyrdom and there were definitely interactions with the world. It would – you know, it might be Islam for example. How did the how did the church kind of fit that in? A big part of that question was is this a, is this a sect or a side shoot of Christianity or is this another religion entirely? So that's kind of what I've been thinking about is how do we – how do we orient ourselves as as Christians? And if we're going into an age or period when when um, our identity is going to be questioned, is that going to make us is that going to make us more outward focused or more inward focused? So that's kind of what I've been thinking about. Does that make any sense, Scott? You know, I remember – yeah, it does. I remember the first day of class in Dr. Bill Weinrich's early church. Um, this would have been 1991 when I was at seminary in Fort Wayne. And I remember him telling us right then – and this I've, – I've thought of this thousands of times since then. He said that the church today faces a scenario much more like the church of the second century – than the church of the 16th century or the 19th century or, sure. you know, and, and that we, we are still operating as if we, in some ways, as if we live in the 16th century and as if we live in the 19th century. That is to say, in a, a Christendom and a, in a, in a society that is predominantly, at least nominally Christian, and, you know, so the, the conflict – to apply this to what you're saying, the conflicts tend to be very much internal and, you know, we're addressing each other. Everything is about polemics and um, – but whereas in the second century, yeah, I mean the enemies of the church, there was just the one church. I mean not that there weren't always going to – there weren't always – splits and offshoots and right. sects you know I'm, I'm from the time of the apostles we know that that was already happening of course but um but nonetheless you know that there is something to be said about uh living in a in a more hostile society a more hostile word, world or perhaps one of the outcomes will be that the christian church at least that part of the church that holds to creedal christianity will um, and not to say that our differences are unimportant or that we should ignore them or sweep them under the rug, but that we may find that we have an, enough in common that it would do us well at least to converse with each other and try to cooperate on things that we can cooperate on without without somehow diminishing our confession. Yeah, take each other and, and a little more seriously basically. Ab- absolutely. You know, and I, I will say – my entire education from kindergarten through college and then semin- seminary – I almost said cemetery. Seminary. Easy to confuse was, sometimes. Yeah, right. My entire education was within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod until I did an MA and I did an MA in an evangelical school where um, some of the students – and it was a, um, a very conscientiously evangelical school, very faithful to its origins – and um, there were, and because I was studying bioethics, we had students who were Roman Catholic. We had students who were Pentecostal. There, right. there were Lutherans besides me. Yeah, there were Lutherans besides me. And um, you know, it was it was instructive for me to be with these people and to form some kind of friendships with these people as classmates and as professors and students that um, 
realizing at least on many major issues, these people all believe in the triune God. These people all believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. You know, what I mean by creedal Christianity, you know, that, that, that they're there. And even on where we have some differences, when you actually start to talk to some people, you find that, I mean, I've been surprised to find, you know, I just learned recently from a friend of mine who's a Baptist pastor. He's a Baptist pastor in Kentucky and we're friends. And he told me that in the Southern Baptist Convention, there is a big move, a big trend towards having the Lord's Supper more frequently. And <laughs> yes. Now, they define it differently. Okay, I, th- That hasn't changed. But there, I think it's important that they are starting to recognize that it is – it is something that should be done more for, he said his church does it monthly and he brought them there and he said they were doing it quarterly. Right. And, um, and I said, well, you know what, in our circles, it, we know, did that a hundred years ago. ago. Yeah. Right. It wasn't that long ago when we were doing it quarterly and being monthly was a big deal. And, and we're still moving towards as a denomination, more frequent communion as well. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, Oh, that we're on the same page. But I think that's an important observation that churches that they don't simply disregard it. They don't necessarily know what it is, but they know that it's important and needs to be more central to their church practice. Right. And right. I think that that's a good thing and, and ought to be encouraged. Right. No, no, no. I certainly agree. And and, and so what are the what are the things that are happening in our world today that are that are going to push us together with other traditional Christians rather than pull us apart. That's that's kind of what I that's what I've been uh, uh, been ruminating on here this past two weeks. Really, what are the things that push us together, and what are the things that 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 pull us apart? And not all of the stuff that pushes us together is good. Not all of the stuff that pulls us apart is good. So this isn't a nice, you know, together good, apart bad. Right. I don't think it's right. that simple. But, um, but I do think it's instructive that you know what are the issues that that unite traditional Christianity? Well, life. That's going right. to be that you know today, especially in the wake of these horrific Planned Parenthood videos. That that is what pulls us together right now is to ask the question of okay how do we uphold uphold life and seek to care for these children whose lives are at risk? I, I don't know anything right now that is more unifying than that. Well, that's the, definitely at the moment, and. And and really for some time. I mean the Catholic yeah. Church has been leading the charge on the pro-life movement and that makes for strange bedfellows sometimes. Yep, sure does. You know, you know I, I, I can remember when I was in Pittsburgh, I was a pastor in Pittsburgh. I was the chairman of our local Lutherans for Life chapter mm-hmm. and um, I had people coming to my Lutherans for Life chapter who were Methodists. Who were other other denominations? We let them come. I mean, they were sure. this this one gentleman was my neighbor, and he's like, "Hey, we've got nothing like this." And, and you know, he didn't he didn't know of any Methodists for life. There might be, but he didn't know of any. And so he was like, "Can I come to your meetings just so that I can be a you know be a participant?" And 
And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then his wife, however, was Roman Catholic. And so I got to be invited to some of these Roman Catholic events. Right, um, right. And, you know, it's just an interesting thing. The life issue does bring us together. Um, I would also say human sexuality, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's the battleground. I think the human body, and this would include both the life and the marriage issue, the human body is the battleground of today. That is in terms of the in terms of the culture wars, but in terms of what's theologically at stake, it's to me it's a spiritual battle, and it's and it's the battleground. Um, you know, not so much. Uh, well, of course, we. I, I was almost going to say religious liberty, <laughs> but yeah. the, you know that's an issue too. That, that that will bring us together. I think we need to. Although honestly, the religious liberty issue is only in front of us because of these other two. Exactly. I mean that's exactly. that's kind of the – I mean yes, that is a part of it. But that's a – I would argue that we're thinking about that because of the life issues and more broadly the human body, human sexuality and everything associated with that. Yeah, well, you know, I, one of my colleagues here at Concordia University, Irvine, is a, one of the professors here just got back from a semester in China. We have a program in China. And he was teaching there with some of our students hmm. and and then they did some touring and they did some other stuff. It's something to do – I think they have like an international studies program sure. and they, we, we have an office in, in mainland China. And one of the things he was telling me at lunch or telling us at lunch the other day was that the Chinese Lutherans, um, you know, the, when you're under a, a, a communist oppressive culture like that, a government like that, he said the Chinese Missouri Synod version of the Lutherans right. have a real hard time because they, they, you know, they don't want to be unionists, right? But you know, which is to say that you know, like the Prussian Union, where the Reformed right. and the Lutherans were all right. kind of merged. They don't and, want to and, pretend like the differences are utterly irrelevant. But but at the same time, to the communist government, those differences are irrelevant, right. and. And so they want you to be part of the state-sanctioned church, what's called the three-self church. And the Lutherans have to be more underground because they don't want to be part of this state-sanctioned mm-hmm. church. And so they're, but the underground movement is predominantly Pentecostal. So you find <laughs> – So they're pushed these, together with Pentecostals. The, 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 yes. Wow. But, 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 for, but for some reason, that's preferable. I, you know, they, they found that to be preferable because at least those people are you know, not beholden to the government in terms of what they can say, not say. Right, right. And, hmm. But you know, so, to, so to stand alone, you know, the couple of thousand Missouri Synod-related Lutherans that are in this country of 1.1 billion people, to stand alone is very, very difficult, especially when the government doesn't see you as – you know, separate. They see you as part of it. Right. 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 Well, I remember um, – I'm going to guess it would be like about 17 years ago that um, my colleague and I got involved with a uh, with an organization called the Veritas Society mm. and and this was a, a um, mostly Roman Catholic organization, although not – Exclusively so, um, but it was largely largely uh, uh, Catholic Lutheran Catholics for Life, um, with with a lot of Lutherans for Life related people, and 
And what their goal, and this has been years since I've even thought about this, what their goal was to was to try and provide positive alternatives to Planned Parenthood. So they supported adoption centers, women's health clinics, and all sorts of things. So they they were not the uh, protest wing of the pro-life movement. And and they would have a dinner and they would do all kinds of things. I actually um, heard uh, Cardinal uh, Cardinal Dolan speak oh, – I don't remember. It would have been about 1998. This is before he was a cardinal. He was the Archbishop of Milwaukee. And, uh, and, and it always struck me that this is a group of people that I can call friends. Oh, yeah. That these are, that these are people that I have uh, really enjoyed getting to know and people that I can disagree with but I can still have a beer with. And, and that we could argue and we can recognize you know, some of these things really are – pretty fundamental to our identity and we need to learn how to talk talk together mm-hmm. so there are groups like that out there and i and i fully expect that as we as we move forward with this uh um with with marriage uh with the life issues and everything else just this past oh, i want to say a week ago um the uh, euthanasia bill here in California was reintroduced in the House. Now, you have to start thinking about this California stuff now that you're out I here. I do. I do. Yeah. Last year, it was defeated and they reintroduced it again this year. I, basically, identical bill. They're, mm. They are not going to stop. And so uh, and, and so this is a bill, as I recall, is modeled largely after the uh, Oregon uh, euthanasia practice. And so those things are going to continue to come up. They're not stopping. They're not slowing down. And I think that they're going to force us to ask the question of what do we actually believe about this stuff? How does this matter? What does this have to do with me as a, as a human being? And, um, and I do think that we can kind of learn from, from the church of the, of the early centuries about how to how to ask some of these questions, not only the martyrs, but also the, uh, also the Christian apologist, Justin Martyr and others. And, and they have tremendous wisdom on how to, how to interact with the culture, with the, with the time of, with the arguments of their day and doing so with, with charity. That's, uh, uh, that's a pretty important little, uh, little topic for us, I would suggest. Well, what, um, what what were some of the specific things that that you talked about in the class as far as how that would look? Well, um, you know, one of the one of the things that the that the church was known for in the first centuries uh, was diaconia. Sure, was was that the church cared for all that they did not that they did not um, care only care for their own even. But they cared for the poor, the marginalized, the uh, the outcast, the the people who have been uh, left behind in whatever capacity. And in Roman society, this was a society of strength. This was not a society that uh, that valued uh, the weak and those in need. And so, infanticide was was um, was common. Uh, that there were lots of pieces to this that um, that the church would reach out. And would say, and and you can even imagine how is the how is the Roman going to uh, going to look at this? 
here are these Christians who are valuing, it seems like, are valuing weakness above all else. Well, that doesn't seem very threatening on the one hand. Um, but compassion does also have a way of kind of breaking down barriers. That's, that's for sure. So that would be one, uh, that would be one example. I mean, and another example, of course, is to, is to say, uh, to confess who I am in the face of whatever the consequences may be. Um, loss of life, loss of property, loss of family, you know, how, uh, how willing are you to say, I am a Christian? Uh, are you willing to lose your house over that? Are you willing to lose your family over that? Have them sold into slavery? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you answer those questions? And um, we are. I don't know. I don't even think that those questions are on our radar yet. Mm-mm. And and I hope that I'm wrong. But uh, the. Very frankly, if we're not willing to uh, give up a Sunday morning to come to church for an hour and a half, it's hard to imagine uh, being willing to give up my my property and life for the same. That's uh, and yeah. and and you know also the the concept that words and actions mean things is uh, uh, today. Uh, in, in our culture, words kind of become plastic. You can you can redefine a word to mean whatever you want it to mean, um, and and that that actually was a very convenient way to uh, uh, to lie. If I can, you know, if I can just say, well, what does "is" mean? <laughs> um, but uh, there, I expect there will be a time when when we're going to have to have to ask how. How important is are these words? I am a Christian. What does that What does that actually mean to me? What is my identity, and what's my What's my relationship to all of these other people that say I am a Christian? How do I, um, and how do I confess this faith with them and and on behalf of them as well? So yeah. lots of stuff, and this is kind of one of these classes where there's so much amazing stuff in it. My head still kind of full and I'm and I'm kind of unpacking things along the way but so hmm. do you think that it would be um, strategically wise and not just strategically but just morally imperative that our churches make an effort to do things cooperatively in you know cooperation and externals with other Christians whereas we even though we officially know that we can there are certain external activities sure. we can work together on but how many of us actually do right um you know one of the things i was going to do when i if i would have stayed in pittsburgh or pittsburgh when if i would have stayed in elmhurst illinois which is where i came from a couple of months ago right um i was a pastor there and one of my plans was to try to organize all the pro life churches or the pro-life pastors and priests right. and have like a monthly luncheon in my, in my, ch- at my church where we would have a speaker, you know, just, a, a right. you know, I, I even, I was going to call it the Fiat Lux Society, mm-hmm. uh, let there be light. And so, you know, we would get together with the priests, you know, there'd be Greek Orthodox or, you know, the pastors, there'd be Southern Baptists. And we would be talking about, we wouldn't have a worship service, but we would sit, we would have, we'd break bread together and we would, and we would discuss and maybe do things. I don't know, you know, organize protests or, or, you know, 
do 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 real specific political things. But I I was wanting to do that. That was something that I thought would be very beneficial. It would get us talking to each other and perhaps cooperating on some issues and helping to educate our laity. Yeah. Do you think our churches ought to be trying well, you mentioned the Veritas Society. You know, I'm sure every uh, locale has some kind of a pro-life organization. National Right to Life is everywhere. Sure. Um, I guess in my mind, I am uh, less interested in in sort of programmatically becoming involved in you know in in national organizations than in trying to figure out ways to to do things at the local level. And I mean, and you're right. And, and I know, and I don't mean this as becoming kind of a, a, you know, ecumenist, none of this matters sort of thing. But Mm -hmm. frankly, I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of people that are, uh, that are connected through marriage and other ways uh, to St. Peter and St. Paul down the street, the Catholic Church, and to, you know, and to the big Baptist Church and other places. And, and that's hard. And that kind of, um, that grates against my Lutheran curmudgeonness, mm-hmm. which is, uh, which is difficult. But, uh, but I have a feeling that we can learn from each other and that that's going to be helpful along the way. Well, and just forging the friendships. Uh, yeah. I, I think to, it, it helps us feel less isolated. It makes us a little less parochial. Yeah. Um, we tend to be in the Missouri Synod a little inbred. Um, you know, where we're, and that, and I just think that that skews your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I tend to I, agree you know, so, too. You know, just if there's some way that we can build friendships, and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily mean that these turn into altar and pulpit fellowship types of relationships, but that you build friendships with people, you know, even or even non-religious people, you know, people that are um, of like mind on certain things. And it seems to me that the cause of Christ, you know, if you're talking to Roman Catholics, I mean, there's one thing you can say about Luther is he was at least engaging people that he disagreed with. That's he wasn't sure. just, he wasn't just talking to the people that said yes. He was talking to people that didn't like what he was saying. And I don't think we do that. Yeah. I, I don't think we really, I think we do it with each other. <laughs> you know, we right. talk about people right. we disagree with to each other, but how or talk to each other can't... until we find something to disagree about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I don't know that we do, you know, I could see being in, involved in a pro-life or an ecumenical pro-life organization leading to fruitful conversations with Catholic priests and nuns and with other Protestants. Um, I, I think there could be fruitful conversations and you just never know, uh, you know, what kind of benefits can come from that. Is there risk? Sure. Yeah, there's risk. There is risk that we become just sort of a kumbaya sort of mentality. Um, and, you know, let's just all get together and, and forget about the things that divide us. Uh, that's a risk for sure. And, and but, some people are like that. Well, I mean, you figure probably the greatest Lutheran ecumenist of the 20th century that was more engaged in speaking with Rome and with and with other faiths, other religions, was Herman Zasa. Um, and Herman Zasa is is arguably one of the most brilliant dogmaticians in centuries. I mean, this was a man that was uh, thoroughly 
Lutheran, kind of you know, start to finish. He knew who he was. And because he knew who he was, he wasn't afraid to speak and to listen. And uh, I expect we can learn from that along the way. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Well, it's probably enough for uh, for today on that topic at least. You can uh, you can find more out about this episode. Read our uh, our copiously prepared show notes at thecruxofthematter.net slash podcast slash 31. Uh, you can get a hold of us by uh, by writing us at feedback at thecruxofthematter.net. And we will definitely look forward to uh, to hearing from all of you along the way. But of course, before we finish, we have to uh, talk for a little bit about our uh, joy bringers along the way. What do you have for us this week, Scott? Well, I've been doing a lot of reading and studying and talking about, um, <laughs> even as we did today, <clears throat> theology, the body issues. And that includes sexuality and homosexuality. And one book that I picked up um, is by a woman named Eve Tushnet. And I heard her on a podcast for First Things. And I thought that was – I thought she was just tremendous. And she has a book. She she is a devout Roman Catholic, but she also identifies as homosexual. She's a lesbian. But she's celibate. She's celibate. Okay. She, 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 she acknowledges the teaching of the church and the teaching of the scripture and she – but she doesn't think – she will ever be heterosexual, if you know what I'm saying. Right. She doesn't think she can ever be attracted to a man. Um, well, anyway, she wrote this very interesting book called Gay and Catholic. And I don't agree with every single thing she says because she's very Roman okay. Catholic. But, but, what, but, but the things I disagree with are not usually about the gay part but about the Catholic part. <laughs> you know, <we're, laughs> right. Um, uh, you know, she, but she, I think that's an interesting approach because she talks about how she can sublimate her, uh, what would she would consider sinful desires by focusing on things like working in a, pro, a, a crisis pregnancy center. Mm -hmm. She goes there, she's able to, uh, work with other women, help other women, and not in an erotic way. But, right. but that, that, that helps fill the need, you know, not eliminate, but fill the need. And she also talks a lot about same sex friendship hmm. and how that is a topic that has been very under, um, under examined, I think, you know, the, what is the significance? What do you gain from, a, you know, the loyalty of a, of a strong same sex friendship? Sure. And she, anyway, she, she writes about some of those things as ways to cope, but she, She's firm on the Catholic teaching on, you know, being against same sex marriage and, and sex outside of heterosexual marriage. I mean, I don't think hmm. there's any, I have not, I haven't finished the book, but I'm two thirds of the way through and I haven't found anything objectionable in that way. Um, she believes that the daily Eucharist is so important for her in terms of her, when you're, you know, when her prayer life is strong, when she's, when she's attending the Eucharist frequently, when she's going to confession and absolution regularly, she then, you know, is drawing spiritual strength from that. And I think this idea of celibacy, instead of trying to say, well, we can cure the gay person, we can, we can change them from being attracted right. to people of the same sex to being like a switch attracted. that you can turn yeah, on and off. Which is very controversial, and the evidence for that is slight that that can occur. Right? She's she's proposing this 
just seeing this as a life of celibacy. She doesn't want to be a nun, but she just thinks that you can still have sort of a, a vow to celibacy, if you will, um, and be gay and Catholic. And hmm. that's what her that's what her that's what her book's about. And there are others who've written books along this subject, but but this one is just such a well written book, and hmm. it's humorous, and it's just self self uh, effacing. And I think that it would be something that some of our listeners might want to pick up. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds like a good read. Once again, you cost me money. There you go. Stop that. All right. So um, I'll uh, I'll see your gay and Catholic and raise you. Uh, anxious choosing faith in a world of worry by Amy Simpson. Uh-huh. Do you know? Uh, oh, yeah. Do you know this book? Or you know I know Amy the Simpson? author. Yeah, Amy Simpson yeah. wrote uh, is uh, probably best known for uh, a book called Troubled Minds. Troubled Minds: Mental Illness and the Church's Mission. Um, she is an editor at Christianity Today, and this is her latest uh, her latest book on kind of on dividing. What's the what's the the difference between clinical anxiety and spiritual worry, and and how do we sort of unravel that? She's not Lutheran. We're not gonna we're not gonna go along with everything she has to say. But um, having a conversation about that distinction is a really good one. She's a great writer. I have always enjoyed her writing, and uh, and that's what I've been uh, been trying to dig into here. Of late, so. so 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 it's anxious choosing faith in a world of worry. Yep, yeah, it just came out from uh, University, yeah, University Press. So uh, so I think uh, I it is really hard to find good stuff on mental illness from a Christian perspective. It just yeah. is, and sure. and it typically comes down either. Being too secular or being um, too fundamentalist, for lack of a better term, um, and uh, and and so I'm always interested in people that are trying to actually uphold, uh, in in Lutheran terms, uphold both kingdoms, left and right hand kingdom, and that mm-hmm. and that distinction. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm been, been working my way through that and enjoying that very much. So that's what I'm doing. Awesome. I think that'll do us for today. You got anything else for our uh, dear listeners, Scott? No, I've said it all. You've said it all. Now that everything yeah. has been said, I think that we are good. And with that, we will see you next time. Very good. Bye-bye. <laughs>